the excitement and the degree of joy that we each feel this morning is certainly a magnificent thing. The capability of health, of life, to enjoy the wonderful things for which we've just prayed, and the character of, most of all, the wonderful spiritual blessings that are to be had by you and me through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to note Ephesians 1, verse number 3. As I stand before you this morning, look over the audience, we're blessed as many times we are with visitors, and for you we're certainly appreciative and thankful for your presence. For a regular membership alike, it's good to see some who have been sick for some time, perhaps also last Sunday, but able to be back again. And we hope that things continue for each of us to be in a good way, that we can also serve the Lord with health and to serve Him with vitality and power each day. We have... Of course, yesterday enjoyed a wonderful Bible Bowl effort, and as Brother Roger mentioned in the announcements, we certainly wish to also congratulate our young folks and all who had any degree of involvement in that. In fact, we as a congregation participated in one way in the sense that we utilized the puzzles to help remind us as well as encourage them about the nature of that book of 2 Samuel. Since we've now concluded the formal Bible Bowl, let's uh, have finish up those puzzles, and it's coming Wednesday, if you would, and you turn them in to Denise, to Denise or to me, and as we'll make ready for perhaps a very special uh, effort uh, in the very near future that hopefully we can say more about. Hopefully even next Sunday we can get together and celebrate. I hope to say a little bit more about that perhaps this evening. But if you would, work on the puzzles. If you don't have them finished, if you have them finished and would like to staple them and turn them, turn them in to, to, to me today, certainly that's fine. But uh, by Wednesday, we'll have that as our final, final due date, if you will. Then we can proceed to, to celebrate the conclusion of our Bible Bowl efforts. We have been, for several Sundays casting the spotlight on several books of the New Testament at a time and striving to overview the precious things to be found within those books. In our study to this point, as we have looked at the books of Matthew all the way through Philemon, we have come to appreciate in a resounding fashion the life of our Lord, the power of the church, the nature and the beauty of Christian living. Perhaps it can well be stated in the following way, the life that's pleasing to God, that day-by-day -day existence from you and me that brings glory and honor to Him is heaven-bound, Bible-bound, Christ-centered living. And that's what each of us should strive to live by. And in the efforts that we've seen unfolded in the words of inspiration, we've been challenged, all of us, for God leaves no stone unturned. All the things that you and I need to live a life full of godliness and righteousness is found within this one book. In that sense, we come today to look at the seventh installment or the sixth installment in this series of lessons. Our text from Hebrews 7.25 hopefully will be a key thrust that leads us through not only the book of Hebrews, but the book of James as well. And so without further ado, let's turn our attention to the Hebrew letter and strive to overview some of the major thoughts and ideas within it that I'm convinced can be just as meaningful for us as they ever were for those Hebrew Christians to whom the book was first written. With that said, though, some introductory thoughts might be in order. Those introductory statements that I had just made a moment ago in relation to the character of where we had started and where we've come to lead us to appreciate that the study of Hebrews is in many ways a rather different book and structure from those that have preceded it. Some of the introductory thoughts as we start that journey can well be found in the following fashion and in the following way. First of all, 
The book of Hebrews, to those that we've studied to this point, is exceedingly unique, for you and I do not know for certain who wrote that book. In fact, throughout the centuries, there has been significant speculation as to who, in fact, the author of the majestic book of Hebrews is. Was it Paul? Was it Apollos? Was it Luke? Was it perhaps one of the other gentlemen mentioned in the New Testament? The Scriptures do not say, and it is certainly more than speculation for you and I to guess. We just have to wait until heaven's golden door we see to find out almost certainly who wrote the book of Hebrews. But might we say at this point, the purpose of the book is exceedingly clear. In 13 scintillating, majestic, and beautiful chapters, the author of this book sets before those to whom it was written the necessity of earnestness and faithfulness due to what they were having to undergo and what they were having to experience. A word of background would certainly be useful. The, in fact, the name of the book is very suggestive. Hebrews. It was written to individuals who had grown up in the Hebrew faith, knowing it thoroughly and well. However, the time came that they became knowledgeable of the gospel and thus converted from Judaism to Christianity. And in that conversion, they suddenly found themselves meeting a host of persecutions. Under Judaism, they had no persecution. Rome didn't persecute those that were Jews. It did persecute Christians. And once they obeyed the gospel and became Christians, they suddenly found themselves the enemies of very many who were formerly their friends. And furthermore, due to the fact that they were under such intense persecution, they naturally were tempted to leave Christ and go back to the law of Moses, to go back to the Hebrew faith in which they had had no persecution. The Hebrew writer in 13 chapters points out to them many reasons you do not want to do that. You do not want to give up what you have in Christ and return to what the law of Moses offered. We will notice a number of specific things he lists. In fact, you and I will begin in chapter 1 in this way. In chapter 1, one of the first things to appreciate, Christ is superior to the angels. You and I may well imagine, as they did then, that angels are tremendous creatures and beings. Christ is superior to them. Notice as it begins in verse 1, Out of the gate, immediately the Hebrew writer says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time, fa time past unto the fathers by the prophets, but hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Pausing there to note, Who is it then that God speaks to us through today? It isn't Moses. It isn't the law of Moses. It is not, in fact, any entity beneath that law. It's Christ. That would have been a very powerful and opening point to the Hebrew letter. In verse number 4, notice he clearly there introduces the word angels and helps us see God never at any time said to any angel, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. He directly quotes from the book of Psalms of the Old Testament. And notice is that quotation had reference to the Savior, not to any angel. Thus, questions would have immediately been arisen in the mind of these Hebrews. Think clearly, why would you want to revert to a system of faith that is not based on the perfect law of Christ? It was inferior to His law. In fact, in verse 14 of chapter 1, doesn't it there remind us that those angels are nothing but ministering spirits to the saints, to those that are the faithful of God? 
All that said only whets our appetite for the continuation of those thoughts in chapter 2. For there he says, beginning in verse 1 of that chapter, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Aren't those penetrating words? There, these individuals that knew the Old Testament were reminded that quite often in the Old Testament, angels did tremendously great things. And yet, if angels could bring down fire from heaven on occasion, and if angels could perform other mighty works, what does that now say about you and I who serve beneath one who is greater than the angels? Does it not mean we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard? You and I could well be ashamed then when we fail to give the proper heed and the proper consideration to the marvelous words and teachings of the gospel, for they stand higher in power and importance than the things that men may write. It any wonder then in verse number 9, as the exclamations of Christ are continued, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor for the suffering of death, that he should taste of death for every man. Who was it that died for you, Hebrews? Was it Moses? Was it Elijah? Elisha? No, but Christ did. He died for you, and therefore he humbled himself to the point he tasted of death for every man. In verse 14 of that chapter, after saying he's the captain of our salvation, we're reminded that it was by the fact he overcame death that he had the power to destroy the devil. The only way that you and I can ever overcome Satan is not by our own labors or efforts or works or the best of intentions that we may put forth. Only the Savior, only Christ can make that happen and allow that to take place. Is it any wonder then that when you and I find ourselves in times of temptation, who is there to provide the necessary aid and support that we can be victorious over the temptations? Verse 18 of Hebrews 2, Christ. Thus, he begins to summarize somewhat briefly in chapter 3 by helping us appreciate who is indeed this great apostle and high priest of our faith. Chapter 3, verse 1. And in this chapter, the Savior is shown to be superior not to the angels, but to Moses. Would that not have been a terribly meaningful thing to the Hebrews? After all, that Old Testament is called the Law of Moses. If it could be shown then to these Hebrew Christians that indeed Jesus is superior to Moses, would that not help them strive to remain faithful to Christ and to not give up that to return to the days of the law of Moses? He begins in verse 2. And continuing to verse 6, he presents it in this way. Moses was a faithful servant of God. That point cannot be argued. However, he asks and makes the point, Moses was a servant. He then turns his attention to Christ, but Christ as ruler or Lord over his own house, whose house are we if we remain faithful? You see, Jesus is not merely a servant in the house like Moses was. He's ruler as a son over his own house. Who is greater, the son or the servant? That question's easy to answer, isn't it? The son is greater than the servant. 
Thus, as this servant, Moses, finds himself inferior to this son, namely Jesus, who should you and I strive then to remain close to, Moses or Jesus? Is it not the Savior? May you and us the appreciate then we must remain faithful to be members of the house that's his. For isn't it a sad thing to notice Hebrews 3 verse 12? And in the power of that text we see, Take heed lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. May you and I strive thus to take hold of the rest God has promised, Hebrews 3.18 and Hebrews 4 verse 1. And that rest remains under the faithful of God, Hebrews 4 verses 10 and 11. Are you and I going to be faithful, enduring unto the end, Hebrews 10.22, and only in that way receive the everlasting promise of life? It is to be noted at this point that there are a monumental set of verses given to remind us of all that God has done for us. May we begin in verse 12 of Hebrews 4. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To note verses 12, 13, 15, and 16 in Hebrews 4. You and I have the wonderful Word of God. Furthermore, since there's an all-seeing eye in heaven watching us, it's futile to try to hide from the Savior. And isn't it true? He was tempted in all points like us, yet He majestically overcame it and never sinned. Does that not then give us the recognition He can help us when we face trying times? When we face difficult circumstances and situations that the Savior is there if we'll but come to Him? He says in verse 16, let's come bold into the throne of grace. We have every reason with confidence and boldness to not be timid and shy, but to cast your burdens upon the Lord and He shall sustain thee. First Peter, as we read in chapter 5, verse number 7. With that said, chapter 5 opens. And now, if you and I were to be asked what singular person in the Old Testament system of the law of Moses held the highest consideration and was that person that served as a go-between between the human family and God, we would answer the high priest. For this person offered sacrifices for the people. He, in fact, was given the responsibility of entering the holy place at certain times and performing certain activities. Do we have a high priest under the current system of religion? If so, who is it? What office does he hold? And is it important? Three chapters will be spent. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, reminding us of the nature of the priesthood of our Savior. Chapter 5, verse 6, He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Immediately we encounter one of the single deepest arguments in all the sacred scriptures. A priest forever, not after the order of Aaron, who was the priest under the law of Moses, but he goes backward in time over a millennium earlier. A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Ultimately, it will not be till chapter 7 we'll see the fullness of that argument. But in chapter 5, the author pauses for a moment to chastise his hearers and also to upbraid them. 
Verse number 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. The necessity thus of remaining faithful to this one, not Moses. And note again the powerful injunction of verses 12 to 14. They could have done better. And so he says, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Why? For he is a babe. That's verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 5. Doesn't that rest as a weight upon all of our shoulders, admonishing us to ever realize, could you and I do more for the cause of the kingdom? Could it also be that when the Hebrew writer wrote to them and said, you ought to have been a teacher by now, but you aren't, you're still a babe in Christ? Maybe I need a good swift consideration in my own life to that same regard. Maybe all of us could think, have I wasted too much time I could have devoted to the Lord? Have I involved myself in matters that brought no glory to God's kingdom at all? Maybe we each could see the need to ever push the boundaries of our work larger, onward, upward, and higher. Notice in chapter 6, he begins in verse number 1 with statements that read as follows. The urging of going onward and upward in our service to God. He says, therefore, leaving the first principles... As babes in Christ, we start and are immature. But there should come a time that we can set aside the baby food, isn't it? Certain things, certain doctrines should be so well thoroughly understood and familiar to us, we can set those aside. Chew on the meteor matters and in fact utilize those things to encourage us as well as others. Have you and I left those things behind that ought to have been more minor matters in terms of maturity and moved on to greater and more advanced matters of the faith? It is a pertinent question, isn't it? And a challenging one for each of us. Verses 4 through 6 of Hebrews 6. He notes a very interesting statement that has confused many throughout the ages. A statement that reads in these words, verse 6. If they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Where that was prefaced by the thought, it's impossible. Some have seen that as the statement that it's impossible for one who has fallen away from the faith to ever be returned. We know that's not what that teaches. For look only a few verses later, specifically in verse 9. But beloved... We are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though thus we speak. Could these Hebrew Christians that had returned to the law of Moses, could they have faithfully come back to the blessed side of their Savior by proper repentance and activity on their part? Sure they could. What he says is if they had no desire to return, God would not force them to come back to the side of the Savior. He won't make anyone be a member of His kingdom. It's all on a volunteer basis, isn't it? Does that not then lead us to see, as that chapter closes, the immutability of God's counsel and His will in verse 18? God's will is absolute in the sense He shall bring it to pass. Is it any wonder then in chapter 7, the argument concerning Melchizedek deepens? For we have a statement made, without father and without mother. 
He served as the ruling priest in the time of Abraham in Genesis 14. Doesn't that remind us Jesus too did not inherit the priesthood because he inherited it from his father. That wasn't the case. You see, he is the Son of God. And as such, he was anointed to that position as priest because as this chapter unfolds, he had no sin. He never had to offer for his own sins. He could absolutely give himself to the offering of others for their sins. As such, that brings us to the text we noted. In verses 24 and 25, he has an unchanging priesthood. That was one of the weaknesses under the law of Moses, wasn't it? When a high priest died, a new person had to become high priest. Jesus has been high priest since that marvelous account in the second chapter of Acts, and so shall it be until the end of time, an unchangeable priesthood. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? For that reason, in verse 25, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Who can save you? Moses? Not at all. But what about Jesus? Those that come to God by him. And so in chapter 8, verse 5, See thou do all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Calling our attention to the construction of the tabernacle that was necessary to exactly and perfectly follow the pattern given. And so it remains today. We mustn't tamper with God's plan for the organization of the church, for the worship of the church, for the plan of salvation, for anything revealed. See, thou do all things according to the pattern. We have that pattern. No wonder then in verses 6 through 13 of chapter 8, that old law is no longer the law under which we serve. Jesus, notice in verse 8, better promises, better covenant, better high priest. Why would you want to return Hebrew Christians to an inferior law? Christ has a better covenant. In verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, and that which waxeth old and decayeth is ready to vanish away. That old law is not even there for you to go back to. Christ nailed it to the cross and took it out of the way, Colossians 2.14. No wonder in chapter 9, the emphasis is now laid upon the tabernacle. Every Hebrew considered that a significant structure. For that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that's where God met with His people. What about in the New Testament era? We understand the church is where God's holy place is. Are not you and I privileged to be able to be a part of that organization? In the Old Testament, only priests were allowed to enter into the holy place. No other human being, even though an Israelite, could see it. And in fact, in terms of the most holy place, only the high priest could enter there, and only once a year. Think then how wonderful it is for you and me. We can be a part of the church daily working in the blessed light of the glory of God. Continuing in that idea, he thus notes in verses 11 to 14 in chapter 9, the reality of the blessing that's ours. But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say not of this building. Notice it's not a physical matter in the sense that blocks and wood make it. The church is you and me, individuals whose hearts are dedicated to the cause of the Savior and who give their life in open submission to His will. Is it any wonder then... We read in verse 22, without the shedding of blood is no remission. Who shed the blood? Was it Moses? It was not. 
Christ shed his blood for you. In the latter six verses of that chapter, we find a discussion of what that means. You and I, you see, in verses 27 and 28, can be ready for a judgment. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Who's going to appear is not Moses, it's the Savior. On to chapter 10. In the first four verses, we see the realization of the inadequacy of that old law. The conscience couldn't be made clean. And is it not stated in verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Let's pause for just a moment. Throughout 1,500 years of Old Testament law of Moses, how many animals were offered? How many gallons of blood flew forth from the nature of that altar? Thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of blood. And how many sins were cleansed by it? Not one. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. All of those were offered in lieu of the fact the Savior was one day coming. And when He came, His blood would flow backward as well as forward to cleanse all sins of all humanity of all time who would come to Him by faith in obedience to the commandments for the removal of that sin. It's a breathtaking thing to consider, isn't it? Is it any wonder then in verses 7 through 13 of Hebrews 10, we're reminded of the greatness of that sacrifice in these words. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One sacrifice for all time. It is a remarkable thing to consider. The responsibility then that should rest upon you and me. Seeing what the Lord has done for us. Notice beginning in verses 22 through 26 of this chapter. A very touching scene in one sense and a very sobering one in another. He has in these words, Let us provoke one another to love and to good works. Given what the Lord has done for us, can you and I not be there to encourage and edify one another? And that, by the way, requires this, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. These Hebrew Christians were on the verge of giving up Christ. To go back to Moses, and the Hebrew writer says, Are you sure you want to do that? Who shed his blood for you? It wasn't Moses. Who is superior to the angels? Who is superior to Moses? And now he comes to the point, rather than turning aside from Christ, you need to draw closer to him. Don't forsake the assemblies. Be there every time. And that is still a needful lesson for us today, isn't it? When the cares and distractions of the world can make it tempting, I'll stay home tonight. Don't do that. There's no better place on earth to be than here. And friend, it's a sin not to be here when you can be. For notice in the next verse, verse 26, those who willfully trod underfoot the Son of God put into an open shame every day. When you and I willfully forsake the assemblies, it's like driving nails in his hands and his feet one more time. The assemblies are important. It's here where we're encouraged and we're edified and we're strengthened and we glorify God. We don't glorify him watching TV or fishing or playing golf in the same way we do here. His word is opened. The name of the Savior is exclaimed. Is it any wonder then as that chapter closes, Hebrews 10, 
we're reminded of the precious privilege in verses 38 and 39 of what we have, the Old Testament worthies didn't. And he expands on that in chapter 11, the honor roll of faith. Isn't it true that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? Verse number 1. And verse 6 points it in these words. It's necessary for us to have faith. It's impossible, you see, for us to come unto God and be pleasing to Him without the essential ingredient of faith. He explains in a number of Old Testament characters what faith meant to them. It meant they simply did what the Lord said to do. Isn't it a shame that the world fails to appreciate that today? Faith is far more than just a mental intention or a thought. It is doing what God said to do. Isn't that what was said of Noah in Genesis 6.22? Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And yet in this chapter, Noah by faith built an ark. So that must mean that when he did what God said to do, he was acting in faith. All the other examples follow in similar suit. In chapter 12, he draws the point to you and me today. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. There is a race in which you and I are engaged. It's a race, and the finish line is heaven. May we never think that it's anything other than that. It's not sizable homes, large bank accounts, fancy cars. The finish line is heaven. And if we miss that, we've missed it all. He thus says, lay aside every weight in the sin which goes along with it, and run with patience that race, doing what? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Jesus is the one. He is the one that can provide the directions and instructions and the encouragement to cross that finish line. So it is in chapter 12, we're reminded that times are going to be difficult. A marathon runner has difficult times, I'm told, in finishing that race. There are times he gets to the point his legs feel so heavy, so difficult, you don't know if you go on. You have to have the mental tenacity and encouragement to do so. Isn't it not true the same with us? Discouraging times of despair will arise, but how do we handle it? Notice in verses 6 and following. It's not then that you fall aside and slip away. You more clearly focus on the teacher you have, the instructor, namely Jesus, and you draw nearer to Him. That's the way to overcome, isn't it? And so we come to the closing chapter of this book, chapter 13. Some closing admonitions, such as, let's not be forgetful to entertain strangers, verse 2. Let's never forget the power of the family. Marriage is honorable in all, verse 4, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. In verses 5 and 6, let's not be covetous, but rather let us remember the Lord has said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Verse 9, let's not be deceptive and wishy-washy in the faith. Let's grow and mature and be sufficiently grounded so that we're able to discern what's false doctrine and what's not. In verse 17, obey those elders that have the rule over you. And suddenly the curtain closes by admonishing us one more time to not forget the blessed Lamb who shed His blood for us. Verses 20 and following. And with that, the book of Hebrews closes. I strongly suspect that upon reading that book and hearing it read, 
those Hebrew Christians that were suffering beneath the load of Roman persecution suddenly would have been re-strengthened and encouraged and would not have given up the Savior, would not have given up Christ. They would have left Moses right where he belonged, a great servant indeed, but not the son over the house. May you and I be as faithful as they were encouraged to be and be those who are able to draw near unto the Lord and to follow Him with all the earnestness and vigor of our life as well. The book of James follows it, but perhaps we'll reserve James until next Lord's Day morning. As we look forward to that opportune time, might we appreciate perhaps a word of summary about our lesson today. the enthralling book of Hebrews that has encouraged us time and time again to appreciate the blessing that's ours in Christ. So many things that they under Moses never had the privilege of enjoying, yet you and I now have. Our high priest is absolutely perfect. Theirs never was. And as we mentioned earlier, our Savior is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Could we just pause a moment and observe Jesus sprang, we are told, out of the tribe of Judah. As such, he could not have served as a priest upon earth, but he now serves, you see, at the right hand of God in heaven, bringing my concerns and your concerns directly to the one that sits beside him. They never had that privilege in the Old Testament. Don't you want to be a Christian today? If you have never had your sins washed away by his blood, why do you delay? The Savior gave up everything for you. You see, He gave His life. He shed His blood. He had previously left heaven to accomplish that great end of sanctification for us. He begs and pleads that you and I would in wisdom and urgency appreciate what He has done and respond in faith. If we could assist you today in so doing, it would be our honor. Jesus has demanded this of you, and you and I mustn't tamper with it, but follow the pattern that He gave. Hear the word of the Lord. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name audibly before the hearing of others and be baptized for the remission of sins. Over and over again in the book of Acts, we see individuals who did that very thing and they became members of the body and they were blessed with the promise of eternal life. That would apply to you too. If you have become a Christian at some former day and time, but have not remained faithful as much as you know you should have to the calling of God, we each are the best judges of the talents that God has given to each of us. Have you used them in the service of the Master? Or have you allowed them to be used by another Master, one who has allowed you to waste them? If you've wasted them and wish to come back to your first love, if you haven't been as strong and need the prayers of encouragement from others, let us pray with you, for you, on your behalf. You'll be strengthened and God will welcome you home in faithfulness. If any of these things would be the need of your heart and life today, we would urge you to please let us know, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing. <clears throat>